We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Big Blue Banter Podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Nick Turchin. It's been a while since our last podcast, and I'm just happy to be back and getting into this again. This podcast has become my passion. It's become my favorite outlet for my sports content, for my creativity. It's become an event that I, quite frankly, look forward to on a weekly basis. And for those who need a little bit of catching up, after I took my first extended vacation in probably 24 months, it was an 18-day trip out west, I came back to a new job. I'll no longer be covering the New York Giants for 24-7 sports. That means no more eight articles a day, no more social media page filled with my content, no more newsletters. Now I've moved up a little bit in this world or gone a different route. Depends on how you want to see it, how you want to call it. And I'm now an NFL editor for CBS Sports. Really excited about this job. Today was day three for me. Um, This role has been super exciting so far. It's been a challenge. It's something different. And I still get to write about the Giants whenever I want to. It's kind of my choice now, which is pretty, pretty nice. Um, And I have some cool things in store for my coverage of the Giants on CBS Sports for this season. But Nick, he's also been busy. And he's got big things brewing as well for the 2019 NFL season. Unfortunately, they have to remain a little hush-hush for now. Needless to say, keep an eye on him moving forward. For now, I get the luxury of having Nick continue to join me for this podcast. So on that note... Let's dive into this thing. And as you know, during the season, we will break down the All-22 Coaches film on the Giants. Today, we're going with the broadcast angle because, quite frankly, NFL Game Pass has still yet to open up the preseason for the All-22 Coaches film. But having said that, I take the game on my, well, my roommates, let's be clear, 75-inch QELD TV that he bought recently. And I like to consider it a poor man's version of the All-22. So we'll go with that. Um, But let's jump right into this, Nick. Everyone wants to hear about Daniel Jones, and obviously we'll get there. But first, I want to start with the first possession on both sides of the ball. So on offense, there's been a lot made in recent years on our podcast, in the media, and other places about Eli Manning's field vision. And in regards to the play-action dump-off that he had on the first possession of the game, uh, you know, there were some fans who said, who looked at the broadcast angle and said, there was a wide-open Rhett Ellison for a first down. Why did he not make that throw? So what I want to know is the Giants obviously then went free and out. Is this a play where Manning deserves the blame, Nick, or is there more to it? And at the same time, is this something that's correctable? Or are we at the point where it kind of is what you see, what you get from Eli Manning in these post-McAdoo days? <laughs> I think it's a little bit of what you see, what you get. I'm laughing just because it was the first rep of the year. And right. So the, the running wide zone, and he gets it well, as he gets his turns his head around um, – he looks down the field and he, he doesn't see what he expects. And I think one of the reasons why was just really simply uh, he they motioned um, at a 12 personnel. They had a three by one set to the right. They motioned the Z wide receiver over to the left with the other wide receiver. And I think Manning saw the 
trailing safety um, follow him, and that's usually man indicator. So I think he expected man pre-snap. He was actually zone post-snap. Um, and so when he gets his head around, he doesn't realize that it was the safety that was following him, not the corner. That may be because the, the Jets don't really have, like, you know, personnel in necessarily that he may expect or he may not even prep for those personnel. So I just think he thought it was man and ended up being zone. And he, if, if it's a zone play, he's thinking that he's going to throw the delay route to the flat uh, to the tight end, which he ultimately did. Uh, but he's probably not expecting that deep corner route for the tight end to even be close to being open because it's, you know, he's expecting man. I see that, Nick, and I understand that. But I feel like we're a little bit of a broken record here where a lot of what we've talked about over the last, I don't know, however many months we've been doing this podcast, it's over a year now, is that Manning sees something pre-snap, he sticks with it, and often when it's something else post-snap where he gets from the defense or, you know, maybe it's a fact of the matter is he's not adjusting and he's not able to see other aspects of the field that open up that may have not been there in his pre-snap read. He's just going with what he originally saw. And, like, at, at, so I guess I'll ask this, Nick. Is that something that we see that you see often from plus quarterbacks in the NFL? And I'm not talking about the bottom half. I'm not talking about the bottom third. I'm talking about quarterbacks who can consistently move the ball, uh, you know, on a consistent basis, week by week, season by season. Is that something you see from these quarterbacks, or is that something that's kind of specific to the bottom half? Uh, I think it's something, you know, it's a trait that you see. And, and again, not to really jump on him for one rep, but, you know, you could see his, you could see him recognize the coverage or the, or the change, right? And as he, as he, he basically, some quarterbacks have the play speed to make that throw deep anyway. Manning doesn't, and especially when he's on the move. He, he's solid when he's on the move, and he's a little bit more athletic than people give him credit for, but he is by no means a, a very dynamic on the move thrower that very quickly from a platform where his feet are all tangled and moving, he can snap the ball 20 yards downfield. He doesn't have that. And I would say, yeah, that's a top third quarterback type throw. Yep. And not only is it top third quarterback type throw, so I mean, you know, you're not going to get that on every team. It's hard to find these quarterbacks. But at the same time, Nick, I think we would both agree, and you could tell me if, if you disagree on this, that in Pat Shermer's specific system, it's an important trade to have. Is that right? You know, and that's. That's yeah, throwing on the move absolutely, but more importantly, being decisive enough, whether or not it's a pre-snap plan or a post-snap ability to have a quick release, absolutely and absolutely. Whenever you get into the world of West Coast or area, for that matter, right. the quick release in this in this day and age absolutely matters because again, he doesn't have to fire the ball on a rope thirty yards downfield. That's not what you're asking for. You're just asking for you know distributing the ball quickly. Yep, and that's something that I don't see improving in his age thirty-nine season. Something the Giants are going to have to live with for as long as he's a starting quarterback. But let's move on from that first offensive possession. It only lasted three plays. And let's go on to the first defensive possession here. Obviously, the defense came on the field. Jabril Peppers nearly jumped off, jumped a pass in the flat for an interception. That was notable. But what stood out to me, Nick, on this drive was a combination of things. It was the lack of pass rush throughout the entire drive. And that Sam Darnold touchdown drive we're talking about. And it was against an offensive line that, quite frankly, in my opinion, is bottom three in the NFL, bottom five at best with the Jets. Yes, they added Ryan Khalil, who really wasn't that good last year for the Panthers. It was his worst season by far in the NFL. And aside from him, that offensive line, uh, you know, it's got Osamelli, who hasn't been good since 2016, Beecham, who's all right at left tackle, and that right side is really just replaceable guys. So, you know, what do you attribute to this lack of pass rush to? Is it kind of just, you know, vanilla first, first preseason game, whatever, or is there something there where this pass rush might be a problem all season long? Uh, you know, I think it's going to be a con- I say concern, meaning a developmental concern, because there's a lot of developmental pass rushers there, right? I mean, Lorenzo Carter. I was actually just recently today saying on a podcast that, like, I really like Lorenzo Carter. We talked about him, we broke him down in depth, but I think that the expectations are a little high if he, if you think that all of a sudden he's going to become this kind of prevalent pass rusher in this league and being able to execute moves more than one or two moves kind of on his own and, and win one-on-one in isolation often. I think he's he's really versatile, and that's what makes him really, really good. But I don't, I think it's there's going to be a lot of pressure on kind of the X-Man and um, and Golden to, to generate those pressures through Betcher kind of scheming and helping them up through everything that he does with sim pressures and creepers. So, yeah, I, I, it would look, it was, it was one, it was one quarter, it was one, I mean, it was really one drive. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go crazy yet, but I think, yeah, if you're going to, you're in week two and you're still kind of having you're not having a lot of pressure yet i think that that, that's going to be a problem let me ask you something on that uh note nick because we obviously spent dedicated a whole podcast to talking about betcher and the sim pressures and the creepers and the way that you know he's in nickel a lot he's in 
different sub packages, finding different ways to get pressure, simulated pressures, or even, you know, any kind of pressure. Is it really a situation where, you know, you can do all these things, all these unique things on the defensive side of the ball with your personnel, with the, with the, with the creepers, with the sim pressures, but at the same time, if you don't have a big one or a big two, uh, you know, pass rusher, you're not going to be able to generate a consistent pass rush. Are there really any team? Even if you look at those better teams that were really strong on defense, they did have Chandler Jones, you know, and they did have Golden before he was injured, and they had and they had guy Marcus Golden before he was injured, and they had guys like that who really were successful from a pass rush standpoint and proven. So, is it something where the scheme can only take you so far? Yeah, I think that's right, and or I think that that's that's close to the truth. But I think the other side of it is what the goal of the pressure is. And the goal of those pressures, if you want to talk about sim pressures and creepers and what Betcher runs a lot of, which is rush five. So usually dropping someone off or basically, you know, not rushing more than five, which is if you do that, you have to play man behind it almost 99% right. of the time. So if, he, if he's doing that, I think that the goal is not, the goal is to get the quarterback to move off his spot. The goal is to get the quarterback to think and basically get off of his read and make him uncomfortable. And there's a lot of way that co the coaches at the college level talk about that, you know, like whether it's rattling the cage or, you know, basically doing more than the stats show. I think that's a little bit what happened last year. I think obviously they need to get home and actually have the registered hurries and pressures, et cetera, um, in, in, in terms of that. But I think overall, yeah, it does get to a point because if you don't have the guy that can win one-on-one, -on -one, I think it makes it difficult to dictate pass pro to the offense. Betcher can do that by being um, disguised from a pre-snap basis where you're not going to know which six or uh, which of the six that are near the line of scrimmage are going. But yeah, ultimately those guys are going to get a one-on-one -on -one matchup probably unless if it's more and more exotic. And generally the more and more exotic you get, the harder it is to stay structurally sound in the coverage behind it. He finds that line. And that's why I think he's one of the best coordinators in the league. And that's why I think he's going to be a head coach soon. Uh, but I think that it's a hard, it's hard to your point, because if you don't have that guy that you have one or two guys that can, that can win with their own pass rush moves, I think it's difficult. You know, we broke down Marcus Golden doesn't have a pass rush move. That guy just has an ungodly motor, yeah. right? And then you need those guys. But you, I do think that you're going to have to have a way, whether it be interior pressure or exterior, to, to, to get to the quarterback. It's interesting you say that because I do think it is super important to have a guy who can dictate, uh, you know, with the pass, dictate to the pass protection because you look at what they, even just dating back to, you know, Betcher's first year with the Giants, he really talked up Vernon as that guy. Olivier Vernon was going to be that guy for his defense. He wasn't, and obviously, you know, Coach Peak is wide-ranging and often, in my, I've found through the years of covering the NFL, Coach Peak is maybe 5 to 10% of the time tr the truth, and most of the time it's just coaches talking up their players uh, for whatever reason, confidence reason, whatever it may be. But, you know, I do think you, you hit on something there. If you, you know, if there's no one who this offensive line is accounting for, it really makes the unique things he's trying to do on defense a little harder to do. So really the Giants are going to need Carter to step up. I think that's kind of where they're at right now. Obviously the X-Men, you know, there might be something there with him. I don't know about year one, Nick. Um, and then Golden, like you said, is really just a high motor guy. Um, so we'll see what happens there. But it's definitely something that concerned me on that first drive. Another thing that concerned me on the first drive was a play where it kind of looked layman's view, you know, just from what, you know, it's something my dad actually told me when we were recapping the game. And then I kind of told him, you know, Nick, Nick, I, I said my friend Nick, you know, on my, my podcast, I should say Nick and friend, ha might, have some, might have something to say about that. But, you know, he thought Jabril Peppers blew the coverage on the long pass and run to tight end Chris Herndon. Um, obviously, it was on that first Sam Darnold touch, uh, touchdown drive. Was that a play where it was Pepper's fault? Or, you know, was Pepper's passing that off? Was it a miscommunication that you can blame on the fact that there's new pl uh, players adjusting to playing together in a complicated scheme, uh, defensive system? Where do you stand on that play, Nick? <laughs> By the way, we don't, we, again, we don't script a lot of these podcasts. So Dan doesn't know that I spent like maybe 40 minutes watching this play over and over again and <laughs> talked to the two best defensive coordinators that I, we're not, one's not a defensive coordinator, but basically will be. Um, and <laughs> we're going back and forth on DM and they both guys came to the same conclusion. The conclusion that I kind of came to it. I, we think it was, it's some busts. I doubt it was peppers because he was the flat player and they were basically playing a cover three buzz. But to simplify that, I think it was loves man that he wanted to pass off and then take the vertical of number two, which ended up being Herndon. Um, and I think that was the, the quote-unquote mistake. Peppers alluded to miscommunication in his interview. That's what I think it was because, to be frank, Deese runs mesh like a madman. 
and he runs it at a three-by-one bunch, and he does it in a way where he, he provides added crossers besides just the guys who are crossing, and that makes it very difficult to pass off. And when those guys get vertical, it's like, are they going vertical or are they crossing? It's very hard to do that very quickly, and I think Love was overwhelmed. That would be my guess. I do not know that for sure, though. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. It really, to me, like even just from layman's view, it just didn't look like it was something that was Pepper's fault. I know he was blamed a little bit for that, but... You know, something that, you know, might improve as they play together, as they kind of get a group, a specific group going uh, in the secondary. And obviously that'll be forever changing now that, you know, <laughs> we have DeAndre Baker, who probably is going to miss some time. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Anyway, let's move on past that drive. Obviously, they gave up the touchdown later in that drive on kind of one of those pick type plays in the red zone um, after the two big plays had really set up that drive. But then we obviously arrive on drive two for the Giants, and that's the Daniel Jones drive. So I'm actually going to do it like this, Nick. I'm just going to let you start, and I'm going to let you start from wherever you want here and tell us whatever you want about what you saw on that drive, anything you want about Jones. And then I'll get into the specifics after that. You know, look, it was one drive. It was five snaps or five throws, I should say. Um, uh, I, I, the way I'll kind of say it is what he saw pre-snap was what he could attack post-snap, so it's pretty, the coverage was pretty vanilla. But what you saw was a quarterback that was absolutely decisive in what he wanted to do and, and very confident in the way to attack the defense and thus maximize the structure of the play that was called, meaning he's looking downfield. If defender does Y, I'm going to do this. If defender does X, I'm going to do this. It just happened to be his first read on basically most of the throws. And I'll say just kind of qualitatively from being in the stadium, uh, it gave the stadium juice. Uh, and that's it's a preseason game, right? So, like, how much juice can it really give it? But to be fair, I, I think that it, it kind of woke some people up uh, because, you know, his, his arm's not incredibly live, but I don't know, just the offense moved like it was like it's supposed to move. And it's complex simplicity. It's really nothing crazy. Um, and they just got a, a solid group of, of, of skill position players, but guys, they can get open. And, and that's, I think that's what you saw. Yeah. I mean, breaking it down from kind of what I saw, I was impressed with how the ball came out, Nick. I mean, I did not think that he had that kind of, and I, I use the word arm talent. That's how I always use. And that's, you know, like you said, it's not the livest arm. You're going to say, obviously he's not, he's not, he wasn't doing what Kyler Murray was doing in his preseason game. And obviously he only had one possession too. Ball doesn't come out like that, but the ball came out pretty damn good. I thought. And, I was really impressed with the out, the out pass he threw on third and eight or whatever it was, third and seven. Really good anticipation throw, really good timing. Good, The ball jumped out, I thought. The, the ball to Latimer had a good amount of zip on it, I thought. And then, obviously, the touchdown pass was perfect timing. And, you know, that touchdown pass was interesting because, you know, I read an interview with Saquon Barkley from today after today's practice, and he talked about how he, he was so excited for that play because he literally stood, stood, sat after practice and watched Jones and Fowler go over that play over and over and over again same rep over and over and over again and it shows i mean the timing there was impeccable between those two it's because they put in the time and they put in the reps to get there so i thought that was really cool and i was definitely impressed with that you know something else that impressed me after listening to greg cosell and obviously for those who don't know greg cosell is like a veteran in this game from an nfl at nfl films a real film guru the first guy who really even put me onto this like got me interested in breaking down NFL for, and football from this standpoint. And he talked about, you know, how he was impressed with Jones. He said, he threw the caveat out there. He said, look, these were all predefined reads. These were all pretty simple reads. But that he said, that's not a bad thing. And you went over this too, Nick, on Twitter. And basically, as you said, it's not a bad thing to give easy reads for your rookie quarterback and put him in spots where he can succeed. But what Cosell said, and I'm interested to hear what you think about this, uh, Nick. Cosell said that what he was most impressed with was on the play-action pass uh, to Cody Latimer, he did a really excellent job of snapping his head around. That's how Cosell said it to like see where he was on the field and then get himself set up quicker to make to get balanced to make that throw on time and on the money to Latimer. And obviously, he talked about it and he's right. You know, you look at a quarterback like Jones who spent most of his time in the shotgun and now he looks pretty comfortable. I mean, especially for his first preseason game from under center. So I thought that was really impressive as well in addition to how the ball came out of his hand Nick uh, what did you think about that yeah you know I think that that's that's a good point by by Greg and you know he's that he's that type of guy it's in, he's in the details he's in the weeds like a lot of us are and it's a lot of fun to kind of follow him and um I think 
people, it may sound a little oversimplified because that's the way Greg kind of, you know, he simplifies things to make it easy for everyone to digest. And it's not, I would almost say it's not just as simple as turning your head around quickly. It's having a running pace that doesn't bob your shoulders a lot. Because if you can imagine when you turn your head to the defense and you haven't seen what they're doing post-snap, it's a question of where do you focus your eyes? Right. And coaches talk about, hey, if, if you're going to have a play-action pass where the guy turns his back to the defense, when he comes around, you, it's very difficult to ask him to read more than two things. I would make the I would make the case for a rookie. It's very difficult to make him to ask him to do more than one thing, to read more than one thing. So um, this is what you know. People love to crush Jared Goff in the Super Bowl when he missed the wide open deep post on the backside. I can't remember what they ran on the front. Oh, they're running post cross, and and this is a great example of a good NFL quarterback who, to be frank, is a little slow when he comes around out of the top of his drop in play action getting his head around and most importantly getting his eyes downfield to where he needs to be to then throw the ball we like to kind of summarize that whole motion of deciding to throw into his release his play speed and so the play speed for jones i would say was, was pretty high there for a guy who's in his first drive knowing where to put his eyes to, you know where to send his eyes when he snaps his head around and and look again that gets back into what was the route he was running it was a simple cross route it's basically a flood concept. It's something he's going to run a lot of. These simple things make it so that the quarterbacks can master the details. This is why it's described as quarterback friendly. So, uh, you know, I absolutely totally agree and just, and, you know, look to see more of that and would say that, you know, it's not just that all quarterbacks need to get their head around, but it's, it's how they get their head around and what they're being asked to do and if they can do it in a very quick manner. Yep. I think you're spot on there, Nick. And you may be able to clarify this for me a little bit because I was kind of get bogged down confused in this type of situation. So I want to know, did we see what would be considered a little bit of an RPO play on the pass to Golden Tate to start that drive off the 10 yarder? What would you consider that? And is that anything different than what we saw in this offense with Eli Manning? Or is that a variation of it? Or how, what, what was that? Is that something that's more, more along the lines of what we might see moving forward with Jones? Yeah, I think it's absolutely what we're going to see with, with Jones. Um, or when Jones is there, uh, there's just a couple elements to describe here. When we say RPO, just to back it up really simply, we mean a run called with a pass tagged to it. Right. So the offensive line, or at least most of the offensive line, usually is blocking a running play, and there's some pass play attack, uh, attached to it. The quarterback decides what to what, what to basically run. Most RPOs that the Giants ran last year, in fact, I would go as far as to say almost all, were on a pre-snap basis based upon alignment the quarterback has the option to do runner pass, then he executes both. This one was a post-snap RPO that was designed to um, to open up a throwing lane for the inside slot receiver on the backside of a two-by-two set. So the linebackers were bumped over, and the coverage was single high. So to be honest, he kind of knew he was going to the slot receiver anyway, and the lane was kind of there. But it's the fact that they're willing to run it and willing to kind of and willing to show that in a, in a script for him, right, in the first drive for him, uh, something that he's going to be repping a lot of, I'm sure. And what it does, the whole part of this of this stuff is not just to run RPOs for RPOs sake. The whole goal is to help not just manipulate the numbers in your box, but particularly the sixth and seventh defenders in the box and to help put them on an island and make them indecisive. And if you make them indecisive enough, they won't trigger or it's, it's more difficult to trigger to come downhill in the running game. So this is something we've talked about in the past where this is a big deal for the running game. I would almost make the case in some cases more so than the passing game itself. And something that were, you know, what Joe Moorhead did at Penn State with Saquon Barkley, it's what helped him. It's what helped, you know, uh, give him rushing lanes. And again, it's not just the original number of men in the box at the snap. It's what happens after the snap and making those guys pause. Yeah, and so you kind of broke that down really nice for me and clarified it. So it's really a difference between last year. It was all pre-snap RPOs, and this year it's post-snap. Now, why? Or not this year. Let's say on this rep with Jones, it's post-snap, and it's something we can see moving forward. And, you know, on the surface, I believe you're kind of hinting at it'll create a little bit more space horizontally with a quarterback like Jones in the backfield running this. But I have a question for you then, Nick, with a little for a little more clarification for our listeners and even for myself why can you run more RPOs post-snap with a quarterback like Jones versus a quarterback like Manning? I think there it goes twofold. Number one, he has a history of doing it at Duke. Uh, Duke's offense, not to, again, I think we've kind of jumped into this. It wasn't terribly sophisticated. It was spread concepts with some simple half-field reads. Um, in the spread concept, they ran a lot of RPOs. 
And so he's got a history of doing it. And that means the mental reps are there and the physical reps are there. Um, it's generally a pre-snap, even though it's a post-snap read, it's a, it's a single read in the, in the post-snap world. That helps quarterbacks that aren't great at sitting in the pocket and hitching or kind of going through multiple progressions. This is more of like a one-stop shot because honestly, if this isn't there, if he likes to pass and it's not there, he has the secondary slant option which is on the outside wide receiver. If he doesn't have those two, he's going. He's and then you can say, I go right? Yeah, yeah. And people can say, hey, listen, you know, does that mean you need a mobile quarterback to, to run RPOs? You you don't. But what you have to realize is that you're not like you're not going to the other half half of the field. The other half of the field is blocking for a run. Right. So this is this is a window into how we can attack the defense quickly and basically again to steal Joe Moorhead's words, to take what the defense gives us. Right. That's what these plays do. And so what, what I really like and why I get so jacked up about this stuff is because it'll make the offense efficient. It may not give you the explosive, but it's going to move the chains. And, and the more you do that, you're going to give more. You're going to make more carries for Barkley instead of worrying about whether Barkley gets a series off in the third quarter. You're going to realize that he may have twice as many opportunities in the first half. Like that's what you want in offense is an efficient offense that gives more opportunities, more reps more chance to attack the defense. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at it from another standpoint, Nick, I mean, during his rookie season in 2018, Saquon Barkley had more for nine plays of 40-plus yards. That was more than any other running back in NFL history except for Barry Sanders during his MVP season and Chris Johnson during his offensive player of the year season. And that's in rookie season for Barkley. That's in a season with no post-snap RPO and no threat of a run game from the quarterback. That's in a season with... You know, Jamon Brown and Chad Wheeler and Spencer Pulley, you know, and rookie Hernandez. So I think the way I look at it, Nick, is if you give a player like Barkley more opportunities based on this, you have a greater chance of him breaking another one of these 40 plus yard plays. And those are the type of plays you want to talk about explosive explosiveness. Sure, it might not be traditional like you would expect through the passing game. But when you have a guy like Barkley, it can come through the run game, too. Um, so this is something that gets me very jacked up as well. Um, one other thing, Nick, before we move on is, you know, Pat Shermer mentioned that Jones wasn't perfect. I mean, I think we pretty, you know, it's been kind of beaten to death what he means by that. You know, he might have blew a pass protection where he kind of got his running back killed. He mentioned that. I think it was Gallman. He also should have motioned a tight end over. But this brings me to kind of a greater point, Nick. We saw Dwayne Haskins, who kind of, not kind of, who definitely struggled in his preseason debut. And to me, it kind of looked like there were some of the things that he struggled with, just like, general quarterback position stuff. He was kind of slow in his drop back, I thought. He didn't really look that poised and confident back there. Is this something where, like, you know, this is kind of what, you know, Pat Shermer calls it he wasn't perfect, but he, and he mentions these little things. Are these kind of the little things that go into quarterback play that, you know, Jones may be a little bit more ahead of than we originally thought? That's a good question. Um, I don't – I haven't watched the Redskins game, and I'm okay. not going to fall behind, hey, I didn't watch the tape, so I don't know. But um, – I will say this, though. I think the dynamic for Haskins is different. And what I mean by that is I think – and I, I, I'm, I some people are going to be mad for me saying this. I think the Washington Redskins quarterback room is the most deep and the best quarterback room in the NFC East. That – sorry, Giants fans, and sorry, Eagles. They're like, they're, they've got two very good quarterbacks there that understand the system, and they've got a third guy kind of in waiting where it's like – he doesn't really need to play for a while. They've got they've got some they've got some depth there, and what I think that's done within the quarterback room is I think Gruden is is asking his quarterbacks to do a lot because number one the first two guys can, and they and they're veterans and they will. And to be honest, I think Case Keenan's gonna be pretty good. That means that if you don't have to start Haskins, you may you might as well make it a sink or swim for him intellectually because he's gonna learn. You know he's gonna learn. What's gonna happen is when he gets reps, they were gonna, they may be ugly at points. And so I think that's what's going on versus the Giants. I think I'll say this. I think the Giants have a more quarterback-friendly system that they're running because if you look at the play calling from what was happening last year, I think you're going to see more of the same this year. It was very simplistic. And this kind of goes to what the Rams do um, in terms of dressing up simplistic concepts versus asking your guys to make a bunch of adjustments and many other things and many different types of reads, reads all within one play package. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, Nick. I mean, first of all, I'll start by saying this. That might have been your hottest take you've ever spewed out here. So you're going to you're probably going to take it. <laughs> quarterback room is the best in the NFC. I mean, I know what you're saying. You're saying it 
differs. It's going to be interpreted completely differently than what you meant. So I'm just going to throw that out there. From the well, start. and I, I said NFC East. I hope in the, no, in no, the... you did say NFC East, but yeah, okay. that's pretty hot. It's pretty scorching, regardless. I mean, Case Keenum, woof, Colt McCoy. I, I, you want to talk about live arms with Daniel Jones <laughs> and what we're talking about with those two? But I, I know what you mean. You mean from more of the intellectual standpoint. Um, I, at least I believe that. But well, who knows if that's exactly what you meant? But either way, I get it. And that is an interesting point because obviously, as we talked about earlier, you know, we gave, he gave Shermer gave, you know, Jones a pretty quarterback friendly script. And obviously, I don't know what happened with Haskins if he got the same thing. It's really hard to tell. I saw him make that nice throw on the rollout, but you know, I, I'll say this: the wheel route he threw for an interception was super ugly to me. And I don't know if that I don't know if I could blame that one on scheme or anything like that. That was just a really ugly. Not to, not to interject, did you see Orlovsky's breakdown of that? That yeah. was pretty. That was pretty good. The, the, he thinks the wide receiver, and I think he's right. The wide receiver doesn't oh. make the pick, and that was meaning Haskins makes the right throw. Wide receiver doesn't make the pick, and all of a sudden the wheel route's picked off because this guy is man to man on him. And so, uh, I see, I see, I see. Yes. Yeah. So okay. one of those things again, not to say it, but it, it was. Yeah, I, I know. I absolutely know he made mistakes, and and from a verbiage perspective, I've heard he's made mistakes. So so yeah, the learning curve is on is on there for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, what they did at Ohio State, I think, was a lot. I think I th- all I'll say is I think that Jones might be a little more prepared mentally than him than he is from what they did at Duke versus Ohio State. But that's kind of just a bold statement that I don't have enough to back up on. So I will move on from Haskins. I'm not going to focus on this. As you know, I was not the biggest Haskins fan. I did think he was obviously a better natural thrower of the ball than Jones, but I don't know. I, I'm not sold. I was never sold on Haskins. Um, but moving on, because this is not a, this is not a Redskins podcast. I want to hear this from you, Nick. Um, as we move forward to this Friday night against the Chicago Bears, a really good defense, the best defense probably in football last year, first team. Their second team has some depth. You know, it's a defense that's been building for a long time. What do you want to see from Jones? And let's just say that could mean Jones and Shermer from the from the play calling standpoint, from the system, whatever it is. What do you want to see from Jones in his second preseason start? I mean, you're not going to see much from a scheme perspective. It's going to be more of the same there. I think you just got to see, uh, you want to continue to see high-level execution. Look, he's going to mess up. He's going to screw up. He's going to miss throws. He, he was not the... You know, there were, he has bouts of scattershotness at the at the college level on tape. We're not speaking out of school here. Yep. What I think you want to see is just when those things happen, that he takes it in stride. And when he does what he did in his, on, his, on his college tape and in the senior bowl, and he rebounds from that. And the continuation of that when he makes – I want to see him screw up. I, I think I think you want to have that because it's going to be tough. This is He's not going to go five for five on every one of his drives going forward. Yeah. And, and so I think now is kind of the time for the learning. And and look, we know that he is at least a f- more than a few games in most most people's perspective for you know sitting on the bench. You know, these are live reps. Get get your mistakes and get your learning on right now. Yeah, I mean for me, Nick, I want to see some more RPO. I want to see him maybe tuck one down and run to show that he has that threat. I want to see some throws on the run. These are the things that I'm looking for because these are the things to me that really intrigue me about his game moving forward and more so the Giants' offense. I mean, you said it best. It really all boils down to just kind of incorporating more of what we saw from Moorhead with Barkley at Penn State. Because if you start to create that horizontal space in the backfield, I mean, this you really, I think, can open up a lot of what the offense can do with Barkley. But moving on from Jones, there's a couple other interesting tidbits from the Giants offense, even from that first drive, uh, guys who shined. And really, it was a couple of Nick Turchin favorites. And I think it has to feel good for you because you've been singing the praises of these two players as much better than advertised for a long time. And obviously, we're talking about wide receivers, Cody Latimer and Benny Fowler. Latimer had the big gain on the deep crosser. I thought he looked really good on that play. Fowler, obviously, the touchdown. So if the Giants need to turn to either of these guys for big snaps during the regular season, I, I mean, is it safe to say they're they're in decent hands here? They're in much better shape than people realize, at least? Yeah, I, I would say so. And, you know, look, you're not going to have they're not dominant guys that can take over a game, but I think they all in, in an offense that's going to distribute the ball evenly. And we don't mean run past 50, 50. I mean, getting it to it's just, it's, it's playmakers in space on like a four to eight reception type thing. Yeah. They absolutely can play that part. And that means, frankly, that'll probably mean a bump, you know, up on the average overall for Ingram. Right. So you're going to add that type of guy as well into the mix. I think, um, you know, I think it's – I said this somewhere. I can't remember. But it was basically – it's a solid group that's a little better than people realize. The thing is they got to stay healthy, right? 
and that's just been tough watching it every day is just you're hearing about guys that are either dinged up or not being able to practice you know it's tough and and they need to you need to kind of get healthy that way and, and get everyone on board but i think when you when you have everyone intact i think i think it's a solid unit yeah i'm with you on that and let's uh before we turn the page on the wide receivers i want to hear your thoughts on the local favorite the kid from new jersey reggie white jr number 13 what did you think of him yeah, you know he's got he's he's a solid player. Uh, you know he had that nice catch on the t- a couple a couple nice catches actually. You know he competes at the catch point. Uh, you know to be honest, I have not seen his his uh, his his um, his tape. It's what I've heard from the mom and staff. They absolutely obviously love him, um, and it's it's hard not to root for him. And uh, yeah, so looking for more of the same. And and you know look, this is an opportunity for everyone, whether it's here, whether it's somewhere else. It's great to see guys get you know receptions. How many guys did we could we say that about last year, right? That like, hey, it was great to see them do this. It's like it, it, the offense didn't really have that in the preseason games yeah. because whether it's here or not, like I said, it, it gets guys into the league and it gets good young players in the league. It, it's good to see. Yeah, I mean, and we'll touch on why I think that might have happened in a second, but the offense definitely moved the ball this uh, in that preseason opener better than I remember really at any time, uh, with the exception of that Davis Webb drive against the Lions uh, during the 2018 preseason. But um, you know, before we move on to that. In that aspect, and you know, I want to hear some specific thoughts on the offensive line play. I do want to hear why you came away impressed with CJ Conrad because CJ Conrad is an undrafted rookie tight end that I'm super excited about. And only he only had two targets. So, really, what impressed you the most about Conrad? I think his the first thing that jumped was his comfortability in pass pro. So he was uh, an inline tight end blocking and pass protection as well as a Y off tight end. So what we mean by that is a tight end off the ball and just spaced outside the offensive tackle and you know when you're asked to block an outside um, man on the line of scrimmage whether it's an edge or a safety or really again whoever it is it's it's a little difficult because you tend to find yourself in space and a guy like him I just liked his stance I liked his movement skills I like the fact that he looked like he had done it before he didn't look like a rookie and and I said this earlier today I came out saying that I apologize but I, I think he's gonna be tight end too fast sooner than people realize because he has hands that are just good enough. He's got athleticism that's that's better than people realize. And he's he's he has that basketball background where he has that just kind of knack in space and in in a contested catch where I think you could you could ha- you may have something here. And, and the biggest part about it is that he can actually block. That's huge. That's a that's a big focus of Shermer's offense to have the the, the bona fide dual threat in terms of disguising your play calls. Yeah, I mean you hit it spot on. The fact that he can be that potential two way tight end for them is really exciting because I'm not big on Red Ellison's prospects of being that two-way tight end, not huge on Evan Ingram's prospect of being that t- two-way tight end, Scott Simonson, you know, Garrett Dickerson. This is, these are not guys I'm getting too excited about, but Conrad is certainly a guy that I'm going to keep an eye on for the rest of this preseason, and I think you're right. I think there is a path to tight end too, especially for a team that's probably going to run more 12 personnel now that they have all these injuries and suspensions at wide receiver. Um, so if they are leaning more on the 12 personnel, obviously uh, that means two tight ends on the field at the same time with two wide receivers and a running back. That gives a little path for Conrad to really make an impact as a rookie, which is not going to surprise us that much, but I think it'll surprise some people. So, Nick, as we you know move past, you know, move forward with the offense, I, before we move on, we obviously have to touch on the Giants' offensive line. I know it was a small sample size. It was one game. But to me, Nick, honestly, all three units looked better in that preseason game than at any point to me during the 2018 preseason. And honestly, like at any point I can remember during any preseason in recent years, they held up so well. And maybe the Jets' pass rush is that bad. I don't know. I really was just stunned, almost stunned at, like, watching that Giants offensive line, all three units. What did you think from the offensive line overall? And then, like, did anyone stand out to you? Um, I watched the second unit pretty closely. Um, I was a little surprised they played as far as they did into the fourth quarter. Um, yeah. That kind of – I didn't remember that in previous years. Just to be honest, I was going to ping you when I was watching it because that – didn't they – don't you want to stay balanced in the fourth quarter and get those – get the thirds, their, you know, more reps? Because they only saw one series, I think. Right. right? They had in the past. I'm so I was a little – I think part of that, Nick, was because – they gave the first unit so much more extended time because they let them in for the Jones drive as well. Got it. Got it. So, yeah, no, I was watching. I was really focusing on the twos. And, you know, um, I liked Gates's movement skills. I liked his balance. Um, I liked his yeah, – I was kind of – I wrote my notes. I thought he was more fluid in his kick slide than Remmers was. Remmers is kind of a little herky-jerky. 
Um, so, so stuff like that looked okay, but I just think you're seeing a guy with a couple false start penalties, a couple holding penalties, you know, like there was some, he had a couple, I think he had, I have a note here about him kind of missing a block. Like there's, there's a little bit of assignment soundness issues there. Um, the one thing that stood out for me, and I don't want to keep on jumping on this guy because the coaching staff likes him, but Pulley's play strength is alarming. And whoever the Jets number two nose tackle was, was smoking him. And it just, it's not for me. I, I, I think the Giants need a better center plan than they currently have. I think yeah. is fine, but I think just longer term, it's like, I don't think Pulley's the backup, and I think that's going to be something you're going to see in 2020 in terms of a, of a draft slash free agency you know, acquisition. I completely agree with you on, on multiple points there, Nick. For starters, I think center is a huge position of need. I think especially for the type of offense they want to run, without a doubt, they need to upgrade there. Like you said, like Pulley is a decent player, but this play strength issue helped Jalapeo, Jalapio, I'm not sold on yet either um there's still the jury is out there he missed the entire mostly you know since after week two he missed the rest of the season with mo- remember multiple uh lower body surgeries there so it's like i'm just not sold there until i see a little bit more there long term they're going to need something there but i'm happy you mentioned gates because gates was a guy i did some digging into last year when they signed him some draft free agent and he really had like a really good career at nebraska like he had one year where he was i believe he second team all big 10 and like ton of praise that season playing I believe it was the right side right tackle but he was a tackle in college he's kicked inside I believe for the Giants but and who knows they're they're kind of moving around but he was someone who Hal Hunter actually mentioned like a week and a half ago or, or right early on in training camp as somebody who was dealing with an injury last year and they felt like they really didn't get a good grasp of who he was and that's somebody who I think is Definitely an interesting name to keep an eye on. Like, I will not be surprised if he makes that 53, even though it's not really expected now. Um, but moving on past the O-line, Nick, is, or before we move on, I should say, is there anyone else you want to touch on on the O-line? No, no, I think that, you know, I'm still kind of looking for Paul Adams to get some more reps and yeah. kind of shoot up there. And, you know, I'm optimistic. I know a lot of people are not. Um, uh, it's one of those things where I just think that for a guy that can step in as a as a heavy tight end option when they want to run that overload type look that they do, that they did a little bit where they brought in Wheeler before everyone got hurt last year, or they traded a few guys or got or cut some people. Um, I think he can play that role right away and he, he get any blocks very, very well in gaps. So that would help them in a couple different areas. Um, so anyway, that's, that's someone we're looking for. Yeah. I mean, we'll, and we'll obviously we'll have more on the O-line as we move through the preseason guys. There's obviously more reps that need to be had before we flip to the defense side of the ball. Cause there is a lot to talk about there. Um, we've obviously spent a lot of time already on the offense. I did want to talk about Paul, per- Paul Perkins, my boy. Uh, 2016 Paul Perkins to me was elusive. He was forcing missed tackles at a high rate. He was awesome in the open field playing behind like arguably one of the worst run blocking Giants O-lines I've, se- I've seen. And that says a lot right there. But, you know, 2019 Paul Perkins, this is really the first time he's been healthy. He can't have a game like he had in that preseason game. He had a fumble and he had a drop pass. And that's just like you watched Shermer last year when Gallman had that fumble late in the season. It was one of the second half games. He didn't play another snap the rest of the game. Like Shermer's one of those coaches where you're not going to fumble. You're not going to drop pass and you're not going to play for him if you're going to do those things. So I think he'll be leapfrogged on the depth chart. Um, is there anyone else who stood out to you on running back who can kind of fill in in that role after Gallman and Barkley? Uh, I liked Hillman before the injury. Um, okay. I know he's not, I know he's not super fast, but, uh, you know, I kind of overall, you know, his his balance and his ability to kind of catch the ball away from his body was, you know, that was the reason why why Perkins dropped that ball was he was kind of absorbing it a little bit. And yep. so I, I think you see those kind of habits where, you know, he has those habits and maybe that can be kind of something. But again, I think you're, you know, look, the way they telegraph things last year, I think, you know, they're not going to have a huge running back, you know, um, stable, if you will. Uh, so it's, it's going to be kind of few and far between. I think Rod Smith is going to make it. But outside of that, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure how it's going to go down. Yeah, that's fair enough. And, and like you said, there's really not that much touch. There's not that many touches to go around. Uh, but let's flip it to the other side of the ball. Um, two, two, two first-rounders got a lot of playing time the first-team defense, uh, one more than the other, and that's first-rounder DeAndre Baker who drew the start. Obviously got flagged for that P.I., but what do you think of Baker's performance overall? Yeah, I think it was good. I think that it was, you know, there, there's that's kind of what we talked about. There's that adjustment period that's going to happen for him, and that's definitely yep. best to happen in the, in the preseason where – you know, he was very physical and kind of grabby at the top of routes in college. And you can get away with it there in just the NFL, especially now with the <laughs> the DPI re- replay reviews. It's yeah, going to get intense. And, and guys like him are going to get targeted. 
And so I think that um, I think that's something he's got to kind of watch out for. And and something that, you know, not to draw it immediately contrasting, but something that Ballantyne is a little bit better in space and doesn't rely on that physicality. And by the way, by the way, I want I would rather have the Baker type that you have to pull back the reins on his aggressiveness than the player you're trying to coach to the aggressiveness point in terms of of, of collisioning and, and being physical. Um, but just something that I think in this league is going to be an adjustment period. So I think that was good. Um or that's going to be that's going to happen in the preseason, and, and hopefully you can kind of get through it. It's interesting you mentioned that, Nick, because when we when we broke down Baker, multiple podcasts we spent on him. You know, you made this point, and it's really, it really was super foreshadowing. Like you know, like it's coming to fruition. Like I was like shoo shooing it. Like you know, this guy dominated the SEC, but like the rules are different in college, and his physicality is he's going to have to adjust because he's not going to be able to get away with some of the things he got away with that helped him be so dominant at that level at the SEC. So. It was super interesting to watch it come to fruition, and hopefully that's something you can work through. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, Ballantyne, we'll get to him in a second. Um, but just uh, you know, for an update for those who, aren't, who weren't following along uh, yesterday, Baker uh, did not practice after spraining his knee during warm-ups. Thankfully, it's only a knee sprain. It was, there, was some, there was some thought it might be an ACL. Obviously, you never know. Um, I still think they're not totally in the clear. I always think that. I've seen so many of these early reports end up being kind of too overly optimistic. So we'll see there. But um, obviously, there was a little bit of an adjustment period. And like you said, you know, the way they're going to call this PI this year, which I think is going to be an absolute disaster, personally, like, I, I you know, like, it's great. You're not going to have that Saints-Rams call, guys. Like, awesome. Like, that won't happen. But, like, how far are we going to take this? Is, like, every single rule supposed to be called exactly to the T? Like, because, I mean, just, like, ugh, I don't know. I don't want to get into this rant right now, Nick. I'm going to let it go. <laughs> I'm just not into this new rule at all. But let's move forward with Giants talk. What do you think of Dexter Lawrence? I think he was solid. I think he was solid, and I think that you're going to have a guy that can, you know, he played a he played a little bit of three tech. Um, you know, they're not going to. I think the way to say it is they're going to show what you would what the the bulk of the media would want him to be, and meaning a one to two down type player who's going to play one or three tech. They're not going to show their stunt packages, et cetera, et cetera. You're not right. going to see him doing that. So I think it's just a kind of an easy execution thing and, and kind of watching him as he kind of, and again, I'm not really sure if he's actually lost the weight yet, but as that kind of goes on and, and, the, and the season goes on, if you can see him get, you know, a little more agile and I did definitely saw today that, uh, you know, Will Hernandez was mentioning how he's getting tougher to go against in practice and, and how, you know, that type of thing. I really think he's going to be a bigger part for them, a bigger player for them in the pass rush, too. Yeah, that's interesting to talk about. You know, I, you bring that up. The, the vanilla game plan, you think it only affects the offense, but it does affect the defenders, too, because we're really looking to see how he does operate in a sense. But that was a good point you mentioned with Hernandez, talking about how it's getting harder and harder to play against him. So somebody to keep an eye on moving forward. But obviously someone you just mentioned who, who stood out to anyone who watched the game was Corey Ballantyne, who really made a wide receiver-like play on the football, in my opinion, for that interception. And then obviously immediately this week in practice, he started to see some first-team reps. I mean, he is a guy who really played well at Washburn. He didn't get drafted high because he played at Washburn, but, you know, and he didn't have huge pick numbers. But really the measurables were great, um, both from a raw speed and a, and a leaping ability and kind of his explosion. I really th thought he was a really intriguing prospect. I was super interested in seeing his development when they drafted him, when I started to learn more about him. What do you think about Ballantyne, kind of the, not only the play made on the ball, but just overall his outlook? Uh, I was recently heard um, Dan Jeremiah speak at, a, at an event down in Nashville, and he talked about his like number one traits that you got to have, like the like the non-negotiables on a position by position basis. And I've been someone who's watched a lot of Nick Saban, Venables, Kirby Smart defensive tape over the last you know three to six months, and those guys teach trail technique and they teach you not to kind of turn around unless if you're in phase and. So anyway, the my point is that they almost they almost to the layman they almost kind of put down the trade of being able to turn around and catch the ball and find the ball and make a play on the ball. And Daniel Jeremiah mentioned at the event that I heard him that that was a non-negotiable for him because if if the corner hasn't shown that on tape the ability to do that the odds of him learning that at the NFL level or getting to that level are very very difficult. So with Ballantyne, we now have multiple reps in practice and an interception in the game where you're just seeing good to very good athleticism in space, understanding what he needs to do to as a ball hawk. That's a, that's a, that's a cool thing in a six rounder, man. I mean, you know, the, the, these are, these are, these are options in the sense that, you know, that the, it's, you, 
you're, the odds of you getting a guy that makes the that make the roster are, are really kind of stacked against you. So you know, I think if if he can be that type of guy in year two or year three, I think that's great. If he can flash the ability early and and ride the behind, the pine for a bit and and kind of learn the game that way. Because look, one of the things that really stood out to me in his interview, I really kind of liked his personality. He was just he seemed very grateful to be there because. <laughs> that Thursday night game was the first time he was ever in an NFL stadium. Yeah. The very first time in an NFL stadium he makes interception. That's kind of cool. And so he's just in that moment. And I think it's going to take him a little bit to grow, but you have a guy that can make plays on the ball. Like that, that that's, I think that, that that's a good start to say the least. Yeah. I mean, you look at the giants history over these last 10 years, you can't even look at one single Jerry Reese, former general manager, six round draft pick that even flashed at any point in any preseason game. Uh, let alone any chance to make the roster. And I think it's really cool. Obviously, you mentioned, you know, he was super humble in that interview, really sounds like somebody who has a shot. And obviously, look at what he's been through. I mean, his best friend and teammate, he was with him when he got shot and killed a horrible situation. He's bounced back so fast from that. It's really impressive to me, obviously, from that standpoint. And just something I thought was interesting when I was watching Giant Sight and Sounds, Nick, I don't know if you saw this, but just before that play happened, um, Michael Thomas, Giants veteran safety, looked at looked at the defensive backs on the bench. And he's like, and he's like, this dude. And he's referring to Davis Webb, who was coming in uh, at quarterback for the Jets. Obviously, a quarterback who, you know, as you guys know, if you listen to this podcast, neither me or Nick was high on. We both were not buying that Kool Aid one bit from the Giants or whoever was slinging it. But he goes, you know, Thomas goes, I was playing with this guy. This guy's going to this guy's going to throw the ball no matter what. He's going to chuck it no matter what. You're going to get a chance to pick. Every one of you is going to get a chance to pick. And little do we know, you know, next very on the very next possession, Webb chucks one up and Valentine makes an excellent play on the ball. So it was really just great to see um, from that standpoint. And you know, no disrespect, but Davis Webb, oof, another third rounder during the Jerry Reese era, just totally burnt down the drain. And you know, some people come back at me and say, "What about Kyle Oletta? But I thought Kyle Oletta looked. Better, you know, pretty decent in the preseason game. Um, definitely a different type of quarterback than Webb. Definitely fits the system more. And we'll see what happens there. But um, aside from that, Nick, I wanted to hear what your thoughts are. And you knew I wasn't going to go the whole show without mentioning him because we're talking about my boy, the Wisconsin Badger himself, Ryan Connolly, who drew effusive praise, effusive praise, Nick, from legendary <laughs> linebacker Carl Banks, who must have talked about him on that NBC broadcast more than any single player, including Daniel Jones. You would think that Jones was the most talked about Giants player on that preseason game. If you thought that, you were wrong. It was Ryan Connolly. The dude was all over the field, flying for the ball. He's really, maybe he plays out of control. I get it, and you can tell me that in a second, Nick. You can calm me down, because I certainly <laughs> need to be calmed down. But you know what? If you ask me, Nick, I'm back it up and I say this. There is a spot for a player like this, a relentless linebacker in Betcher's system. I think it's going to come sooner than later. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, I think, you know, we knew he had a, fir- a good first step. We know that he's understanding what he's seeing um, from the coaches. They, they've, they've mentioned that point. Um, I want to mention two points that kind of guys maybe aren't looking at as much. Um, he, when he doesn't make a play and he's got a, and he has a gap that's his responsibility, there's violence through that gap. In this league, there is always going to be a home for that person now, or for that player, I should say. Can he can he be the versatile? Can he become a versatile three down linebacker? I don't really think so. But I think that when you have um, when you have a defense that likes to change its fronts a lot, if you have a guy that's maybe relegated to blitzing, which I think he was okay at at Wisconsin, and being around the line of scrimmage, I think he absolutely can can. There is a home for a guy like that. And believe it or not, I actually think it's it may be closer to Alec Ogletree's kind of spot that he takes. Um, going forward in the next two to four years, that type of player, because let's face it, Ogletree doesn't carry verticals that well. Um, You know, so, and, and, and neither does, neither does Connolly. That's kind of Connolly's issue. Um, But to your point, I really like seeing that. And the other thing that was really cool just to see, and this is kind of way in the weeds, but the, I think the Jets third touchdown later in the game when it's a three by one set and and Gase does what Gase does and he runs basically a bunch of crossers and sends the running back to the trip sides so that creates a fourth player on the trip side. Um, basically, Connolly was responsible for that player if he had come to his side of the field. But Connolly was the only guy to see it. You see it on tape or you see it on the broadcast. The only guy for his head to turn to that receiver to that running back, I should say, before the ball's even thrown. And you could totally see it that he understood that what they were in, what coverage they were in, that was going to be the problem. 
and before anyone else turned their head. And that to me just tells it. It says that guy kind of understands what's being called, what the def- what the offense is presenting them, the problem that the offense is presenting them, and where the defense is weak. Because no matter what the coverage is, every coverage is weak at some point. There's no magic in any of this stuff. Yeah. So if you have the player that can do that, yeah, I mean, look, every team needs a quarterback effectively on the defensive side. And it doesn't have to be a safety, especially when you're dealing with complex fronts. So I do think that there's a potential home. I think that, yeah, he's got to get better in a, in a few different ways, but but a good first start for sure. Yeah, and we're talking about obviously another late round pick that might be, might you know, off to a good start. Might be a guy who has some kind of fixture at some point in some of these packages on defense. Another Wisconsin Badger, so obviously I love him. Now Giants now have two Badgers. Obviously Zeitler, for those of you who don't know, he's a little bit older in the state, but he was also a Badger. Um, but you know what? As for Connolly, I do think you make a really interesting point there when it comes to maybe his best position, maybe his best fit in this defense. Nick is in that role that Alec Ogletree's playing, and guess what? Ogletree next season, next this offseason, the Giants can save almost all of his 2020 salary cap hit by releasing him. That's how that contract is structured. It will take a small dead cap hit, but besides that, they get most of it back. So maybe that's a little bit of a contingency plan if they don't feel like Ogletree is playing up to his level and up to his price tag, I should say, uh, during the 2019 season. Um, before we move on, you know, before we close out the show, Nick, I do want to know if there's any other players we missed on that caught your attention. I know you did something online on Chris Slayton, so maybe you want to touch on him and then maybe just anyone else that caught your attention. Uh, no, you know, Slayton was one play. I don't think that's really that's, okay. that, that's kind of one thing to really kind of dive into. And uh, looking down the rest of my list here for all my notes, uh, you know, the one thing I think you got to kind of bring up, not to jump back to the offensive side. Yeah, sure. Go for um, it. You know, we saw Tanny. And like, let's yeah. be honest, we haven't seen yeah. Tanny ever. So have this to was talk Tanny. You're right. He looked way too good not to talk Tanny. So it's kind of interesting. And the reason why I bring him up is not because he's got all these traits and he's going to be this and I'm going to say this and there's going to be some hot take inserted here. Um, no, what I think was kind of interesting was you saw all quarterbacks, one well, all quarterbacks, be able to be very decisive, look very comfortable in the offense, and to be very accurate with a quick release when called upon. That's that's one thing I noticed about Tanny. I was like, okay, I, now I understand what the coaches were, were getting after. Yep. If they have a guy that, you know, his arm's not unbelievable. He's got a pretty good he's got pretty good vision. He did miss CJ Conrad a couple times, but that wasn't his first read, and he was kind of sending it immediately. Uh, his, mm-hmm. his arm strength is eh, but that's fine. And to be honest, he's pretty accurate. That was a pretty good throw he threw to Russell Shepard for the touchdown. Yeah. yeah. Um. So stuff like that, like you know, I I'm not saying like, you know, he's going to be anything super special, but I do think he's QB three. And he's a pretty defined QB three in terms of like you want to have him there, not just because, you know, you want Jones in there. If there's an issue with Manning, I mean, physically, like I think you actually need that actual backup guy. I think he can he could function that way. Um, So I I like it. And, you know, it was it was was fun to see. Yeah, it's interesting because like I was super impressed by him. But at the same time, like I part of me doesn't want to call him QB three yet because I do like what I saw from Oletta and I still you know, harp back on liking his evaluation from the year before, which I really did. So it's like almost the point where I'm like, ah, well, you know, I really don't totally see the point of Eli on this roster. It sucks to say, you know, like Eli has given this team so much, but like they're not going to win anything big with Eli this year. It really doesn't seem like there's too much of a point, uh, especially if that means losing a guy, you know, that I think still has some developmental schools skills like Valletta, but at the same time, like you said, Tanny, you know, that, that was an awesome performance by him. And like you said, it was a lot of see it, send it, but he was pretty accurate. So it was definitely something that was noteworthy. I'm glad you mentioned Tanny because as we were moving through the offense and we we're on the defense, I was kind of thinking in my head, like, you know, should we say something on Tanny? Really, he played too well not to give him not even a note, not even one notice. But, you know, I'm happy we did it. Anyway, guys, on that note, we're going to wrap up this preseason game one review. Thank you guys for tuning back in. We're happy to be back into this. As always, I will ask one favor from our listeners. It's the only favor I will ever ask. I will continue to ask it just so you can help us out and help us grow. If you do enjoy this show, there is one way to really help us grow, and that way would be to rate us on iTunes, to review us on iTunes, and then also to download the podcast. Even if you're a subscriber, which is also highly recommended, every time you download the pod, it helps us out one by one. You wouldn't believe what kind of help that does. We're starting to hear from advertisers and people that are interested in our podcast, and that's because of you guys, because of our listeners, because you guys are loyal. You're awesome. I love interacting with you guys on Twitter. I love reading the reviews. I've literally read every single review that's been written on our podcast. You can call that narcissism. 
maybe that may be part of it and i probably should see a psychiatrist to get that figured out but that's honestly not the reason i'm telling you i'm doing it i'm doing it because it's so cool to see what you guys say and because it really vindicates you know gives me a feeling of that we're getting through and that you know it's an interactive experience that's going both ways so guys if you've already done that thank you so much for doing that if you want to tell your friends and family about the show that's awesome too but on that note, guys, thanks for tuning in. We will be back sooner than later. Won't be another break this time. We're going to be back after the second preseason game. There's obviously going to be a lot more to break down. Daniel Jones, who knows what happens? Will he go a perfect? Will he be perfect again? That's what I want to leave you with. The question of this: Can Daniel Jones possibly go another preseason game without an incompletion? The answer is probably no. But if he does, I'm pretty sure Twitter is going to explode. So on that note, guys, have a good night. We'll talk to you soon. And go Giants. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.